Hello and welcome to the Antifada. This is Sean KB on a solo episode. Today, this week, we have Matt Crossan, an anarchist from Australia here to talk about recent politics down under and, of course, about uh, perspectives on the Ukraine-Russian war and geopolitics and global capitalism in general. Matt, what's up? How you doing? Uh, not too bad for 1 a.m. <laughs> yeah, uh, this time difference is really tough, uh, but you've managed to stay up way late after work. I've managed to get up relatively early for a podcaster, and here we are. We made it. Thanks for being with us. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. You're a good person to have on the podcast because uh, last week we had our uh, episode with Aaron Haygood uh, of the Platypus Affiliated Society, and we talked about Leninist theories of imperialism. The week before that, we had an episode on Ukraine with uh, our friend Alex Gendler, and you actually had some very pointed criticism of me that I took very well because what I did and what you objected to, quite rightly, I would say, is uh, I counterposed on the one side anarchists and communists, and you managed to jump in with the comment, and you, and you said to me, why not both? You can be both. So I appreciate you keeping me uh, keeping me honest. And uh, maybe this can be the first of a series called, like, Correct the Record with Matt Crossin or something like that. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a common thing. Yeah, I mean, even sometimes, you know, anarchist and, and socialist, where you'll hear people say uh, there's there is a pretty common tendency on parts of the left to kind of just associate Marxism with socialism. And, you know, kind of talk about Marx as though he kind of invented a lot of just key socialist concepts as though they originate with him and he's the, the be all end all. Um, but know that most anarchists um, throughout the history of the movement have been communists. Um, and in, in some places, anarchists were like Italy, anarchists were the first socialists to really organize there. So they were just known as the socialists sometimes. They didn't even call themselves anarchists. So, um, it's something that I, I like to just, you know, something that annoys me. <laughs> I, I, I uh, can't help but correct. Listen, it's a good pet peeve. Everyone's got to have their pet peeves. Mm -hmm. And uh, like I said, yours keeps us honest. So, um, yeah, let's let's get into this. Uh, you're obviously from Australia. Uh, we can tell uh, yes. you're from Melbourne. Is that right? Yes. Melbourne. Yes. Melbourne. Thank you. I'm going to pronounce like things really bad, but I'm not going to do any dumb Australian jokes about barbecue or whatever. I have an American girlfriend, so I, I hear that a lot. So. You've heard it all. Yes. <laughs> um, Crocodile Dundee just really put back uh, Australian American cultural relations mm -hmm. uh, for decades, I think. Um, what's new in Australia? Uh, give us a kind of sense of how things are, because I'm not sure Americans pay too, too much attention. Uh, to what happens down there. Uh, you guys uh, have been living in a uh, what economists call a commodity super cycle for the last mm. uh, 10 years or so. You guys have, uh, as you were saying before the show, like relatively stable social democratic politics. But there's been some, you know, anti-COVID sort of anti-lockdown stuff. You guys had a very harsh lockdown. You've got an election coming up. You have a hardcore conservative named Morrison, right? So give yes, us a kind of much. rundown. Um, yeah, that I mean, that basically about sums it up. We do have an election coming up that should be happening with about within about a month or so. Um, 
At the moment, I think I don't follow the polls all that closely because last time they said Labor were going to win, they didn't. But uh, it, it does seem like Labor is is poised to do well. They just won some uh, local state elections the other day. Um, they're really crowing at the moment about how they're the natural party of government, the natural party of you know stable kind of capital accumulation. That they're the uh, mediators between capital and labor that they can they can manage that antagonism. This is stuff that they're they're openly talking about, mm. um, and uh, with the labor movement bureaucracy right behind them. So uh, I wouldn't be too surprised to see um, Scott Morrison get chucked out and for a, a labor government in Australia. Um, I think a lot of the people who place um, some expectation on that, particularly people around what's left of the uh, labor movement are going to be in for a bit of a, a rude awakening about the, the real limitations that that'll, that'll offer to them. Apart from that, Australia is in a pretty low point uh, in terms of struggle. In terms of people out in the streets, what we've seen recently, uh, similar to other countries, has been this right-wing mobilization around anti-lockdown stuff, anti-vax right. stuff, anti-mandates. It, uh, I think, had a little bit of a worrying uh, sympathy among some of the public just because particularly in my state of Victoria and in Melbourne we had some of the well really probably the harshest lockdowns in the world like it was it was really grueling stuff I and, remember uh, seeing a video of um, I think it was posted by like a right-wing account so it may have been a little bit um, spectacular yeah. but they they had people like in camps essentially like oh, if you yes, refuse yes, to get camps. vaccine <laughs> yeah, they, they'd put you in like a, a quarantined area and there'd be people with hazmat suits and they'd be like bringing you I don't know um, uh, sandwiches and and yeah. water because you were you were outside of society so that so yeah. so it has been a relatively harsh lockdown. Yeah, there was a lot responding. of, uh, you know, misinformation, a lot of um, hay matter made out of things that were kind of misrepresented. Like there was a famous story of someone who, with COVID, tried to cross state lines and, you know, got put in a pretty standard just like isolation period where they got well treated, given meals and everything. And they, you know, that was <laughs> it out. wasn't bread and water. <laughs> um, yeah, it, you know, it was it was extremely tough and uh, a lot harsher than I think a lot of Americans had to go through. And um, so there was some, you know, public kind of sympathy for these people out in the streets, uh, you know, saying they wanted freedom back. A lot of that did dissipate the moment that vaccine rollout started to really get going, restrictions started easing, and it pretty much crystallised down to the, the most uh, deranged kind of small business supplement dealer uh, crazies. The QAnons. Of, do yeah. they have QAnon in Australia? Oh, we absolutely do. And they even oh. carry Trump flags and everything. That's incredible. If Trump loses in a couple of years, he should run in Australia. He would do well. <laughs> Similar sort of settler colonial vibe, right? Yeah. You guys have down there. But we were saying um, earlier, too, that you were arguing that Australian politics are interesting. And maybe this ties into why the sort of social democratic labor center has held in Australia, uh, whereas it's fallen apart in most of uh, Europe. 
uh, you guys managed to kind of dodge the uh, the financial crisis, right, of 2007, 8, and 9. You guys kind of got out of it, but that wasn't that wasn't good politics. That wasn't good policy, right? There were larger forces at work. Yeah, definitely. Like, there's there's this narrative that's been built around what the Labour government at the time did, and they they did do some things. You know, they gave people some money. They did some infrastructure spending around things like schools and this kind of thing. But that's kind of been blown up into this narrative of you know kind of unique political genius by a Labour government, as opposed to, you know, kind of bad ideological neoliberals making bad policy. This was good kind of Keynesian interventionism. And that uh, spared us of the worst of the financial crisis. Obviously, it was, you know, an extremely tough time, but we we really avoided it in a way that a lot of the rest of the world um, uh, did have to experience it. But uh, really behind all that, and sometimes you have to turn to actually kind of right-wing economists to even point this out. Um, but a lot of it has to do with China and actually the Chinese state response to the to the crisis and just the massive demand that that made for raw materials in Australia. Um, Australia is very much an export economy of mining is, you know, really the backbone of the Australian economy. There was just a huge demand uh, from China. And yeah, I really think that that was the the main thing that prevented Australia going through a a similar level of crisis. And I think that directly ties into the fact that Australia hasn't had anything comparable to, say, the Podemos, Syriza, uh, Jeremy Corbyn or Bernie Sanders phenomenon. So far as there's been a kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, populist response, it's actually been in this trend of depoliticization and of people moving away from the major parties. In Australia, somewhat uniquely, I don't know how many countries actually do this, we have to vote. Like, you, ha- you have to at least show up at the polls. It's mandatory. Um, it's a liberal's wet dream. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I do like to point that out. We have basically every single reform that kind of left progressives would love the American voting system to have. And we still have shit right-wing governments, you know. It's uh, <laughs> you know, we've got proportional representation in the Senate. We've got uh, preferential voting in the House. We've got you know mandatory voting. You literally get fined if you don't show up and get checked off. Um, Guys, this this anarchist guest is telling me that formal democracy is not enough. No, I am um, shocked. <laughs> but yeah. So what you're seeing is you're seeing uh, literally a rise in things like what they call sometimes like donkey voting or informal voting. People will go to the booth and they'll just, you know, scribble on the paper, do a drawing. They'll do something that doesn't register as a valid vote. There's some evidence of people like literally just voting randomly in terms of who they number. There's all these kind of crazy minor parties that we have, like based around like single issue things. Like, Mm. you know, you have the the Fisherman's Party, you know, hunting and (laughs) shooting party, bicycle lover association party, you know, all this kind of weird (laughs) stuff. And you're just seeing more and more votes go to these kind of things. And then just like, you know, random independent challenges that arise. And that gets obscured a bit just because because we have things like preferential ballots. At the end, you know, it gets whittled down to kind of the top two, which is generally Labour and the Liberal Party. So it kind of on the two party preferred, what we call it, on that percentage level, everything seems kind of normal and you get these relatively stable governments of um, one to two major parties forming government. But it's really obscuring this um, depoliticization this uh, lack of interest in politics, this uh, feeling that 
these um, this process really is kind of an alien thing that doesn't have much to do with people's lives. Um, so as, as far as it's getting an expression in Australia, that's the form it's taking. So it's quite different and an interesting um, departure from what we're seeing uh, throughout a lot of the rest of the, the Western world. Yeah, that that's really interesting. I mean, it sounds like uh, because you were spared, I guess, the worst of the crisis, then you got the same depoliticization because at the same time as politics in the broader West and the capitalist core, whatever you want to call it. Um, has been, um, I don't know, bifurcated, you know, in, into extremes. Um, you also have like a, a vast depoliticization, I think, uh, just in general. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but but still, like the major capitalist parties, it seems have have been able to to maintain a hold on politics. While I guess you guys have very interesting cranks. I mean, one thing I love about Australia, like America, is that you guys develop really cool cranks. So it's really nice that you have a system that can allow like the um, I don't know the bear trappers party or the, yeah, or the exactly. koala lovers party to have like a seat at the table too. What do you think now? Because extractive capital, as you said, is so important to Australia, and because now we're what twelve years after the massive um, you know hundreds of billions of uh, dollars worth of stimulus that China put into real estate and development and infrastructure or whatever and now we've got the Evergrande crisis that's this kind of slow moving um, bankruptcy on the part of the largest developer in China and you can see the party trying to kind of pull back the levers on all of this uh, investment and growth in that category. Do you see, um, you know, with the end of this commodity super cycle, where do you see Australian politics potentially going? Yeah, I mean, like, that's really kind of like the big question that is constantly what people are talking about here. Um, I mean, like, the, there is just this hyper focus on China, really. And it's this kind of schizophrenic approach where it's, you know, you, you have uh, this you know, classic kind of anti-communist, like right-wing kind of view, um, which melds with other conservatives who are, you know, want to have a much closer relationship with China. And then um, obviously you have uh, the Labour Party that has to uh, account for this interest that, you know, the working class constituency that they're supposed to represent has in maintaining, uh, you know, high kind of output levels for, Chinese demand and to, to meet that and that these are uh, jobs that people in their constituencies uh, uh, need. Um, yeah, I really don't know. I mean, uh, Australia is also in the middle of just like a huge um, housing bubble or supposedly has been for uh, many years. And uh, it's, you know, one of those things that constantly is supposedly just about to pop around the corner. But I mean, I don't know. This is kind of a problem across the whole world, isn't it? Because like when yeah, we see this, yeah. you know, with Web 3.0 and just like capital looking for anywhere that it can uh, rush money. And uh, I don't know, maybe Australia will get really big into uh, meta real estate. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> or just build a new NFT economy or something. Exactly. Maybe they could sell NFTs of like coal and oh, aluminum yeah. and stuff to China you know, after their after their bubble goes down or we can trade them with you guys because it's an interesting contradiction you point at because obviously like the Chinese and the American and the European economies are all relatively uh, intertwined at this point in time. 
Uh, but of course, there's the contradiction too that you know you guys so much of your economy relies, of course, on these exports to China. But then also your government uh, recently joined that uh, defensive alliance with the nuclear yeah. submarines, right? So these contradictions, these political and economic contradictions, this sort of rising coal conflict, hopefully <laughs> with China, hopefully not a hot uh, conflict, combined with sort of economic interdependency. Uh, seems to at some point it seems to like it has to reach some sort of uh, tipping point. But for now, it seems like the various ruling classes are trying to balance that economic interest with this sort of pivot towards a more uh, warlike stance or or a more adversarial stance politically to China. And you guys yeah. are on the front lines, maybe more than even the United States in that sense. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, but like the that interconnectedness that you mentioned really is like one of the reasons why I find it so hard to envision any kind of actual conflict with China just because like I, I can't imagine, you know, what segment of capital would find that to be really a good idea, you know. It, it just seems so mutually destructive and so out of anyone's interest that I, I can't actually imagine that happening as much as, you know, some people clearly want it. <laughs> Yeah, no, totally. I mean, that's that's, I guess, why it's important, maybe that distinction between the political and the economic. And I would have said the same thing. You know, I've been, you know, back to Obama here in the United States. You know, we've been talking about the pivot to China for now, what, 15 years or so. Obviously, Trump with his tariffs and now uh, Biden keeping many of those tariffs and also trying to, you know, continue American military dominance in the South China Sea or whatever. You'd say to yourself, like, there's this obvious contradiction there between the political and the economic, but the United States or Australia can't survive without Chinese commodity production, without, of course, the profits that come out of China and so on and so forth, uh, the, the, the commodity chains and whatnot. But and I, I think this might be a good segue now to start talking about um, the war in uh, in Europe right now. Um, I think a lot of us, certainly myself, were surprised uh, by the irrationality of uh, of Russia's choice, uh, Russia's ruling class, and I guess especially Putin's choice uh, in order to do a full scale invasion of Ukraine. Uh, that old uh, there's an old theory philosophy called do commerce or like soft commerce or the old uh, adage in the capitalist press since the 1980s or 90s that, you know, no two countries with McDonald's ever went to war with one another. We know about the deep uh, ties between the, the Russian economy, such as it exists, and uh, the Ukrainian one. And yet uh, one ruling class decided to attack another ruling class. And um, the economic changes, the geopolitical changes are coming out really fast and really quick. Um, and so if you had asked me a month ago, literally a month ago, because we're now in the fourth week of the, the Russo-Ukrainian war, uh, whether it was possible for one, you know, capitalist ruling class to just completely blow up those economic connections, not just with the com country they're attacking, but with much of the West, I would have said, no, that sounds crazy. But it seems as though there's something shifting right now. It seems as though there's enough pressure uh, within segments of the ruling class, certainly with the with the declining, uh, with the with the rates of profit being so low with the stagnation and austerity we've seen in the last 13 years, that maybe maybe somebody somewhere is willing to blow the whole thing up. I don't know. I feel like we're in different times now. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, 
it, it's hard to get inside, you know, like Putin's head in terms of like what he's actually thinking. But uh, it's also a uh, mugs game. It's a, it's a way to yeah. when when they do it, it's a way to not look at the geopolitics or the political economy of it. So we don't yeah. have to be Putinologists here. <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. Like, I mean, I, you know, if you ask me to like speculate, I, I assume that there's a degree to which he actually does believe some of the things he's saying in terms of, you know, this idea of like Ukraine's a fake country anyway, you know, this kind of like nationalist mythos of, of Russia. And, um, uh, you know, maybe he has gone a little nuts over the over the pandemic. But no, I do think that um, uh we are looking at a larger issue here of inter-imperialist conflict um, and also just self-preservation on part of the um, Putin government. Uh, I, I think there is genuinely just a lot of paranoia and fear uh, about how unstable his own uh, position is. And um, I think he thought uh, that uh, a war with Ukraine that I think he really did think was going to go a lot better than it has, uh, maybe be over pretty quickly, uh, gain some kind of um, military uh, position of dominance that uh, would allow him to maybe uh, get concessions of uh, parts of the Donbass region, something like that, uh, and then just, you know, quickly claim victory and then get out of there and, you know, hope for the same kind of bounce that he got in popularity from uh, the Crimea annexation. Uh, hopefully, um, yeah, just strengthen his own position within Russia. And, uh, and secure his legacy because he's nearly 70 years old. So Yeah, exactly. Right. And uh, I mean, I'm open to hearing from other people. Uh, and if you have anything to, that, you know, insights that you have on it in terms of uh, very specific economic interests relating to uh, parts of Ukraine. Um, I mean, there's very interesting things about uh, grain production that people have been talking about. Um, there's apparently actually a whole lot of untapped um, raw materials and resources in Ukraine that uh, could be a factor. Um, but I, I do think, you know, broad issues of kind of geopolitical rivalry and, um, uh, you know, kind of maintaining uh, a position of strength within these two blocks uh, right. would be a, a key motivation for for Putin there. I mean, two blocks. Um, there there have been two blocks developing for a while, but I guess when I talk about these rapid changes, I mean um, like a, um, a a quick sort of turn into something that we haven't seen since say 1991 or so, uh, and in this case, instead of like a um, one state capitalist block, I guess, or maybe it's the same. I don't know. You've got like it's not ideological now, but it seems as though these sort of lines are being drawn now with perhaps Russia, Russia, China, um, parts of Africa, uh, other parts of Asia on the one hand, um, parts of East East Europe as well, and then Western Europe, the United States, Australia, UK, or whatever on the other. And so, for that reason, of course, uh, this term imperialism is very much back on the agenda. You know, and um, people questioning um, whether this turn from sort of unipolar American slash NATO slash EU slash capitalist core uh, hegemony and dominance, uh, excuse me, and now the opening up of a kind of 
other wing of uh, of power. Uh, what that means for the world. Um, do you have? Tell us a little bit about your thought thoughts are on imperialism because we've been talking about that a bunch the last couple episodes. And maybe what would distinguish uh, your particular anarchist take on imperialism from, say, the Leninist one we got with uh, with Aaron Haygood um, or just sort of general liberally sort of like war bad uh, imperialism that you get so much from the, the running dog capitalist press? Well, yeah, I listened to that discussion and it really struck me as being the kind of conversation where imperialism was framed in this way where it was trying to give it a really kind of specific theoretical content that I think actually maybe obscures more than it clarifies in that I don't know how, I mean, I don't even know to what extent you could say that Lenin was even attempting to make a definition with what he wrote about imperialism. So to talk about it as being like, this is the Leninist definition of imperialism I'm not even really sure is true to what Lenin himself was trying to do. Uh, I think really what he was doing was um, adding his own contribution in a tradition of kind of radical, particularly revolutionary and socialist literature in trying to assess how modern uh, domination and exploitation of foreign states or peoples by other states related to capitalist development and capital accumulation and what kind of internal logics of 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 capitalism may be incentivized or even necessitated uh, imperialist acts or what what we're calling imperialism but for me like this is a way that you almost kind of confuse yourself into taking positions that then seem kind of crazy in terms of well, if we're not saying that this this act by Russia is imperialism, like what is it? Like if you want to have another name for a blatant act of, you know, violence and domination by a state against um, a foreign state and its people, I mean, okay, we can do that. But I think really there's a kind of common sense idea of imperialism which stretches back past, you know, the coining of the term through the history of empire. Uh, as really just this notion of, yeah, a state uh, uh, imposing its domination and exploitation on another people. And this is kind of an area where I'm not too worried about being it being said that maybe my definition sounds like it's superficially or whatever too close to a liberal one. You know, mm-hmm. this is the kind of thing that I hear sometimes from Marxists when we talk about the state. And Marxists have this very kind of peculiar, unique idea of what the state is, um, which is, you know, this kind of idea of the state as a function, right? Of like, oh, well, it's like a class wielding its power over another class, which is this totally kind of unique concept that isn't used by anybody else when they talk about the state. And so then people will say to me, well, no, when I'm talking about a kind of concrete, centralized apparatus of government, and that's what I mean by the state, well, it said, you know, let's Weberian, that's, you know, liberal. Mm. And, you know, they have a different interpretation of how that arose or whether it's good or not, you know, this kind of thing. But I'm not too bothered to to be seen as superficially having a similar kind of common sense view of what the state is. And sure. sim- I feel a similar way about imperialism. I think you're kind of just 
okay, we can have some discussion about, um, you know, the need for markets and all this kind of stuff about what motivates uh, imperialist behaviour in modern capitalist society. Uh, but I think that just confuses the issue and can easily let you slip into making uh, justifications or apologetics or trying to make some kind of moral distinction between, uh, say, what America does in Vietnam or Iraq and uh, what or what happened in World War One and what's happening now with Russia and Ukraine. Or what Vietnam did to Cambodia or vice versa. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, and right. like, I mean, it just, it doesn't, you know, specifically what Lenin talks about in terms of, um, you know, monopoly capital and this kind of thing, uh, it just doesn't seem to, I mean, I don't know what a Leninist would say in terms of, say, uh, Japan in 1900, you know, like kind of early um, Japanese imperialism, where you're not dealing there with a kind of advanced monopoly capital situation. If anything, you're kind of dealing with something closer to, you know, original capitalist development. You're, you're mm. dealing with the initiation of development of, you know, the industrialization of Japan and, and the development of a modern capitalist economy. Uh, and, yeah, so I think you just get into all kinds of confused areas about colonialism and, like, original accumulation and that this is also a, a part of empire and imperialism rather than just, you know, uh, kind of reaching points of contradiction within advanced capitalist states and that requiring some kind of, um, you know, uh, venturing into new markets, conquering of new territories and that kind of thing. Uh, so, yeah. It does seem as though um, these particular definitions of imperialism, and as you said, this unique definition of the state uh, leads people to feel as though they need to that there is a stake in this, that they need to choose sides, right? So you have a, a vast swath of at least the online left, because I don't think the left is particularly important uh, to this conflict there. I mean, the left has been completely sidelined in Ukraine and Russia for a long time mm -hmm. for very specific historical reasons, of course, right? But um, there's, this, there's this compulsion, it seems, uh, to need to choose sides. Uh, and then there's also, of course, this compulsion, too, by many others to say, you know, neither Moscow nor Washington, of course, that's a, you know, the old line, neither, what is it, Moscow nor Beijing. That's mm -hmm. what, uh, you know, uh, libertarian socialists and uh, some communists were saying back in the 1960s. Is it sufficient to say neither uh, Moscow uh, nor Washington? Uh, is there like, um, is there another position that we can take? There's the, the old classic, uh, no war, but the class war position which some people, a lot of Marxist-Leninists would say is a cop-out, right? That ultimately, like, you do need to take sides. There is something progressive about, say, China's development vis-a-vis uh, -vis the United States and, and so on and so forth. So kind of tease this out a little bit. Like, what is, like, a, a working-class position on this? And should we feel compelled to take one side or the other, and why not? So, yeah, I, I definitely would say that uh, you know, some combination of uh, a starting principle of something like uh, neither Washington or Moscow and no war but class war is the right general principle to begin with, that we don't side with states or even really like, you know, sometimes people say peoples rather than states. I think uh, really what we're siding with is um, international class struggle. You know, we, we want to side with 
uh, an international uh, movement for self-organization against oppression and exploitation and in whatever forms they manifest themselves. And to me, it's it's kind of amazing that it's actually seen as a kind of a really complex you know, decision to make. It's just kind of the obvious thing as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I mean, you have to you have to start getting concrete when you talk about specific examples like, say, Russia and Ukraine. And so if we're going to get specific about that, I mean, for me, uh, if your community, if your neighborhood, if your city is under bombardment, uh, you have a right to defend yourself, you know, and that says nothing about siding with, you know, Zelensky or wanting NATO intervention or anything like this. You know, we can get into the complex um, questions about is it a good idea to supply arms to Ukraine because you then get into complex issues of, well, that's not necessarily going to the people you like in Ukraine. It's going to the state, which has uh, things like, you know, the Azov Battalion integrated within it. You have, um, I mean, you know, these, the idea about Nazis in Ukraine is wildly overstated, uh, but, you know, it's not a non-issue. These things do exist and, uh, you know, it's not a trivial issue to ask, oh, do we want them to be getting, you know, missile launches and this kind of thing. Um so there are things like that that you can discuss, but the basic question of do uh, working class Ukrainian people have the right to defend themselves and should we side with them against, you know, Russian soldiers trying to kill them? That's just completely obvious. Um, and then in regards to Russia, it seems to me that the people to side with there, the people trying to, uh, you know, go out into the streets to you know, throw sand in the gears of the Russian war machine. And the Belarusian uh, railway workers who sabotaged the line bringing war materials down uh, yeah, into, into Ukraine a couple of days ago. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like, and looking at the positions that Russian anarchists are taking now, uh, I, I haven't seen any deviation from a really consistent line of uh actually in some cases being like way harsher on the Russian state than people outside Russia are willing to be. Um, and so like basically taking a kind of defeatist position of like, no, we, we want the Putin government to collapse. We want, you know, to be rid of this regime. And I mean, I, you know, for people who aren't following what's going on in Russia, it's like really getting pretty horrifying the, the situation and the circumstances that people uh, have to try and struggle in there. The uh, repression, you mean? Yeah, the repression is yeah. just like it's uh, Russia's been, you know, what in kind of political science terms they call like competitive authoritarian regime for a while. It's had kind of pretenses of democracy. There's been, uh, you know, you could go out and protest. You know, it was hard, but you could do it. Um, that's really being cut down. Uh, and if you listen to the stories of what Russian anarchists have to say, I mean, like they're terrified about posting statements up on Telegram, you know, like mm. that's the kind of stuff they have to have serious discussions about now about how they're going to safely do even that, let alone protest, let alone engage in things like sabotage. There are people trying to do things like, you know, Molotov uh, recruitment officers, you know, things like this, like this is all really dangerous activity in Russia. And for me, it's just clear that that's the people in Russia to side with. There's absolutely no justification for siding with the Russian state. Uh, you don't need to side with the Ukrainian state. 
you can side with the people on the ground defending themselves, particularly when you have, say, uh, groups of anarchists forming volunteer battalions of exclusively mm. anarchist people with progressive politics. Um, and that we don't need to, uh, uh, it, it doesn't go with opposing Russian aggression that we then become cheerleaders for NATO. Now, obviously we have seen, and I'm sure you've seen them on Twitter and, you know, we do have cases of people kind of going nutty with a kind of reverse campism, right? They're in mm -hmm. thinking they're attacking campism and like rightly being, you know, disgusted by kind of apologetics for the Russian state kind of talking themselves into a basically a pro NATO position. I mean, these people do exist and I think it's important to, to be critical of that and to really hold on to our critique of, you know, NATO and NATO is an imperialist alliance of imperialist states. Um, and to not lose that or to feel like, oh, it's not the right moment to make that critique. I think holding on to that is important. But um, me too. all this to me is what, you know, a, a neither Washington or Moscow and a, a no war but class war uh, position um, means. Uh, and there are anarchists in Ukraine, like dealing with, you know, tough questions of like, well, do I join the regular military? You know, if there's no like, you know, some people in say Kiev are lucky enough to have uh, other militants around them where they can form a volunteer battalion or they can take part in a grassroots initiative to, you know, supply mutual aid or form kind right. of community organizations. Uh, some just people pops up all over the place. There's huge networks yeah, no, exactly. created off the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And there are anarchists that actually, you know, there's, there are some that are, that just, you know, thought I need to get out of the country and they, and they left the country. They saw no positive possible outcome of, the war that was about to unfold but at the same time i'm also seeing from some anarchists that they see plenty of opportunities arising out of the kind of community initiatives that they're seeing and the self-organization that's going on in ukraine um but yes you know if there are some people in ukraine who are going to be militants who the option if you want to defend yourself from you know russian tanks is that you join the regular military and these are the tough questions that you know anarchists in ukraine and other revolutionaries have to deal with I think it can make sense to, as a rank and file soldier, you know, join to try and protect yourself and your community. And, uh, but always with an eye towards participating as a revolutionary. And so far as opportunities present themselves to um, advance a, a working class struggle in that context, to, to take that opportunity and to not see yourself as a, a pure appendage of the state. Um, there, I think there's like... Possible. Yeah, for sure. No, that's it's 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 a valuable frame for me to look at in those terms, much more than the geopolitical thing. I mean, there were things that happened, especially in the early period of the conflict, that I thought were important that that people seem to gloss over or even reject, which is like there there's this classic. I mean, going back 150 years, um, the, this classic attraction towards you know on our part as as uh, as militants ourselves uh fraternization of troops for example right mm -hmm. at the very beginning of this war what you saw a lot of were working class russian soldiers and working class ukrainians um maybe not in the armed forces but as the troops came in a serious fraternization uh between them which of course had to be stomped by both the russian state and the ukrainian state right but the idea that it seems like like common sense positions like 
Ukrainian working class and Russian working class unite against your rulers. It seems like those are pilloried now and not taken particularly seriously when, you know, you can see evidence of things like that happening, not just in the sort of more abstract anti-war movement sort of stuff happening um, in both countries under very different conditions, uh, but also, too, in things like uh, Russian soldiers arriving and, and seeing that they were attacking people like themselves, people who, you know, spoke the same language, people with similar material conditions uh, and putting down their weapons. I think a lot of the, the more... Um, the more disgusting and gross violence you're seeing in Ukrainian society in general right now is trying to, to keep people in line, to try to ensure that people keep an adversarial stance when I, I think there is a possibility for some sort of breakthrough, or at least there has been. But that's not an it's is it an absurd thing to say like Ukrainian and Russian working class unite against your rule? I'm not sure it is. Maybe we don't see a lot of evidence of it, but I don't think that's a that's an insane political position. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. And also, I mean, you do get the the argument that, well, what does it mean in the context of like the immediate circumstances of the Russian attack for, you know, a Ukrainian militant to oppose their own government? Uh, what does it mean to when a war has been launched against your country to uh, in the situation, in this specific um, circumstance for to you know, tell Ukrainians, okay, like while the Russians are fighting Putin, you should be fighting Zelensky, you know? Right. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I think you have to be realistic about um, what kind of potential, you know, where the opportunities exist for advancement of struggle, of empowerment, of rank and file within, say, the military, uh, within society at large, and um, to take those opportunities as they come. I was reading actually a... Um, uh, an article from Lenin from 1915, where he was talking about this issue of defeatism and that I think some people maybe miss in kind of just taking this idea of, well, this, you know, any war, you just oppose your own government and that's it. But even Lenin said that, you know, that for someone to oppose defeatism, what they have to demonstrate is that the war is not a reactionary war and that uh, the opportunity for revolution doesn't exist. You know, and I think uh, if you look at Ukraine at the moment, I mean, I don't think you could say that Ukraine's part in this war is, you know, a wholly reactionary one. It's there are people that are legitimately defending themselves against attack and the opportunities for a social revolution in Ukraine aren't massive at the moment. I mean, hopefully they'll develop there are positive things going on in Ukraine. But I mean, to, to say that, you know, uh, the immediate goal of, the ordinary Ukrainian right now should be to go storm, you know, their own capital and throw yeah. out their own government. I can understand why uh, uh, that doesn't necessarily make sense in this in this context. And I think that a part of when we talk about, say, the inter-imperialist rivalry, uh, it's important to stress that Washington part of the Washington or Moscow. I think NATO is much more the uh, other side to this, this coin. Uh, Ukraine is kind of this you know, it's the kind of the chessboard almost that like it, it, they're the unfortunate um, location of where this conflict is is meeting. And that's not to say that the Ukrainian state is completely innocent and there aren't, you know, uh, they don't have their own problems. But uh, they've been made a marchland over the last yeah. uh, 30 years. They've become this sort of the uneasy center between these two different blocks. And um 
you know, the the Ukrainian ruling class and the Russian ruling class and the ruling classes, um, of course, that run NATO uh, played a dangerous game for a long time trying to get influence there. And then now, you know, there's tens of millions of people caught right in the middle. It seems to me interesting. I was thinking about this the other day when, you know, um, Washington and NATO are bragging about how many small arms, how many Javelin and Star Streak uh, anti-tank missiles, how many man pads like Stinger missiles able to shoot helicopters and planes out of the sky are being distributed right now broadly. Uh, through Ukrainian society as this there's this sort of like um, desperate attempt, you know, obviously to, to fight off this uh, invader. It seems to me th- those are things that that the capitalist states rarely do is just distribute like advanced arms uh, to the working class. This seems like an indication that that they they are pretty content that uh, the, the working class will not rise up against them. Uh, and also they seem to very much trust that these Azov and Idare uh, battalion people are not going to go ahead and overthrow Zelensky himself. So there is this weird demo- democratization of, of arms in this conflict right there. It's a very it's a it's it's a quite a gamble by the ruling class. I mean, you could imagine a very different situation where, um, you know, those arms could be used um, in, in a much more revolutionary fashion. I'm not sure that's something we're looking for at this early date in this specific situation, but I find that interesting. I, I mean, I think that's partly true. I think you can't underestimate also the the pure desperation aspect. Uh, I mean, you know, even in, you know, if you look at revolutionary Spain, there were, you know, liberals and Stalinists that were for a while at least reasonably happy to see anarchist militants running around with guns because they could beat back the fascists. Um right. But uh, I think to a degree what you're saying is true, that um, they not unreasonably have a good deal of confidence that their position will be secure. And, and like, undoubtedly, I think, you know, Zelensky is going to have this kind of, like, nationalist mythos, like, around him. You know, he's this kind of heroic leader. Like, I think, I think he genuinely, him and his government would have a lot of support among the population. Um, uh there's kind of a with the the right wing elements. I mean, a lot of this speaks to just the weakness of the Ukrainian military and like how hollowed out it was. I mean, that was the initial impetus in 2014 for why these far right groups were were tolerated so much. I mean, they then established among the population a certain degree of legitimacy. They were seen as well organized, good fighters. They were able to propagate their ideas. They were able to secure. Um, things like state loans to run what they called patriotic like education seminars, you know, this kind of thing. They got integrated within local police forces. Um, and so then it became a much trickier issue and it became this kind of issue of what's sometimes called managed nationalism. You know, this idea of like we we co-opt them to a degree so that they basically don't, you know, coo us kind of thing. Um, uh, I mean, I think they have some justification for thinking that won't backfire on them, but I don't think it's a you know guarantee either. I mean, there's been a lot of things swirling around about uh, potential right-wing coups in Ukraine for a little while now. Um, it is interesting that some of those arms might be going to things like um, anarchist militias as well. Like to think of that yes. happening is is pretty interesting. Um, yeah. I think a lot of it does depend on just how much these self-organized projects at the kind of community level 
and ideally at the kind of workplace level, how much those can proliferate. Um, so yeah. that's kind of as we as we kind of wind down now, and this has been a really good conversation. I think that's that's the important that's an important question, right? Is like how do we imagine? This is a very dire, very bloody very violent and shitty situation uh, that the Ukrainian people are in right now, that the world is in right now in general. I mean, how from an anarchist perspective or from a communist perspective, I mean, how can we imagine anything good coming out of this? How can we imagine, say, the sorts of forms of self-organization that you're talking about, this real revulsion towards state violence? Um, and uh, more generally, the sort of like uneasiness that this period of kind of interregnum right now has brought to working classes all over the place. What are your thoughts on um, on on turning the imperialist war into a class war? How does that happen? How do we imagine um, anarchism or communism becoming, at least in the capitalist core, a popular working class movement again, perhaps for the first time in, in decades? What do you think? Well, um the, the, the million dollar question. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I tend to have a kind of, uh, you know, the, the pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will kind of attitude. Um, I mean, in all honesty, I am actually, I'm quite, uh, I can get quite grim in my thinking about uh, where things are heading in terms of uh, specifically like climate breakdown and what would flow yeah. from that in terms of um, uh, uh, mass flows of people across borders and, uh, the response that that would um, lead to in terms of the development of the far right, in terms of authoritarianism, this kind of thing. Um, People can't see me, but I'm nodding vigorously and yeah. calmly along with Matt right now. What I, I mean, what I hope is that we can uh, begin to build organizations to build power, and uh, you know, in the in the near future, so that as conditions deteriorate, uh, we can take advantage of opportunities. But I don't know, sometimes in my darker moments, I, I think that really what we're going to be seeing is um, any revolutionary movement or movement to seriously transform the social relations of society to one that's, you know, free of states and, and free of classes uh, is one that is going to kind of be fought out in conditions of, of real crisis and of like a, a lot of um, real, real immiseration and uh, really scary kind of conditions. That's unfortunately, you know, what I, I often think is um, going to happen and we just kind of have to be as best prepared as we can to, to meet those um, situations. Um, I mean, there are, there are exciting projects also going on all, all over the world and there's, uh, you know, we've seen enormous struggle I mean, it's easy to forget just because of the the pandemic kind of like slammed everything to a, a shot. But even during the pandemic, obviously, we got the, the George Floyd rebellion. Um, but uh, uh, just before it, we were seeing enormous struggle all over the world yeah. in you know, all different types of contexts. It's, it wasn't totally uniform in terms of um, what their conditions were, but we were seeing a similar uh, types of struggle emerge. I think that they were all uh, fundamentally limited in ways that desperately need to be overcome. I, I don't think we can just keep on doing, uh, you know, this cycle of things like um, Occupy or the interactions of that the we squares. Saw. Yeah, yeah th this idea of kind of filling the streets, uh, you know, kind of trying to physically just counter the, the force of the state 
uh, and not doing uh, what um, uh, I always mispronounce his name, Dove. I believe that's what, what his uh, name is. Gilles Dove, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He has this uh, great line in this essay he has on the, the Gilets jaunes where he says that the, the problem was that the right didn't enter the factory, that it didn't enter the sphere of production. And that I think so long as uh, these struggles, uh, as much as they can accomplish in um, directly confronting the state and causing things like the police recruitment crisis that we're seeing uh, in many countries, including the US, uh, or they can uh, disrupt, um, you know, uh, the circulation of capital and create a kind of crisis of stability that uh, can extract maybe some concessions. I think unless we are able to build power at the point of production and to really reorient ourselves towards a politics of um, of a working class movement, a labor movement, uh, which doesn't need to be, you know, the unions, certainly not the, the established unions or ideas of reforming the union bureaucracy or trying to improve them or whatever, but just wherever we can as rank and file uh, members of our workplace, of our industries, um, uh, you know, talking with our co-workers, organizing with our co-workers, taking action where we can. Um, without that, I really think that we're, we're continually going to see the limitations that we've seen in all of these outbursts of, um, of yeah, really exciting and inspiring self-activity, self-organization, lots of people practicing kind of, you know, non-hierarchical ways of relating to one another and this kind of thing, but which remains fundamentally limited so long as it's it's empty of a politics of of going beyond capitalist production. And I think that really has to be something that we're thinking about. And I'm really influenced and interested in the work of, say, like the angry workers of the world. Yes, who, us too. Uh, their practice has a lot in common with the, the classical anarchist communist tradition, this idea of intervening as militants within uh, social movements, particularly the labor movement, and trying to encourage their best aspects uh, to uh, agitate for things that are consistent with our politics if, and to not substitute ourselves, to see ourselves as being something that takes over movements or that we're some kind of, you know, party or government in waiting, but rather an organisation of like-minded comrades that are trying to encourage the best aspects of activity that's all around us to push them as far as they'll go, discourage the elements that, you know, seek to derail that um, and allow... Uh, our fellow workers along with us to um, create a movement capable of not only extracting reforms by placing leverage on capital and the state, but uh, finally one day uh, taking control of the economic life of society and reorganizing it so we can meet human needs. Beautiful stuff, Matt. That was a hell of a way to end an episode, and I, I couldn't agree more. I'm really glad that uh, I had the chance to, to bring you on. Thank you for staying up till like three in the morning. Oh, absolutely. Uh, on the podcast. Anytime you want, you know, resident anarchist, I'll be uh, happy to come on. Oh, well, we'll have to start the series. Uh, correct the record. <laughs> <laughs> you can call us out on all of our uh, on all our bullshit. But no, thanks again, man. This was this was really, really great. And um, yeah, we'll do it again sometime soon. All right. Thank you. Thank you. In my sleep.